Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College. This is a podcast where we look at the national security challenges confronting Australia and the Indo-Pacific. And if you are interested in studying national security issues, come and see me in my day job at the National Security College at the ANU, where we run postgraduate degrees in national security policy. Uh, You can check us out at uh, nsc.anu.edu.au. And on this podcast today, we're going to be asking what has become of Al-Qaeda and what do we make of recent terror-related events in Southeast Asia. But before we get into that, I would like to again say thanks to everyone that has been getting in touch with us on social media and email. Thank you for your messages of support. We are very keen to hear from our listeners. Uh, We'd like to know what you think of the issues that we cover. We'd like to know what you'd like us to cover as well. Um, And you can get in touch with us uh, via email, um, by way of podcast at policyforum.net on facebook at asia pacific society and on twitter at apps policy forum and as always please subscribe on whatever platform that you get your podcasts from also a quick word of mention uh, keep your ear out this friday as policy forum has its 50th podcast special episode i will be definitely be keen to hear what's in that even i haven't been told but i'm told that it will be big so we look forward to that today we will be hearing from two of the world's leading terror specialists and counter-terror strategists Later on, we will be hearing from Dr. Sydney Jones. She is the director of the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict. And prior to working at IPAC, Sydney was with the International Crisis Groups, uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. Sydney is widely cast as the leading authority on extremism and terrorism in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Today, Sydney's going to be talking to us about how the recent conflict in Marawi is likely to impact the region and the ongoing threat of ISIS. And we will also be asking why the Indonesian military is becoming involved in counter-terrorism, an area that has traditionally been reserved for the police forces and intelligence agencies. But first, we are going to be asking about what has become of Al-Qaeda. After the death of Osama bin Laden, attention has slipped away from Al-Qaeda and onto the rise and the brutality of ISIS. Yet the new Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman 
al-Zawahiri is still at large and AQ and its affiliates are still operational. Are AQ yesterday's jihadis or has the focus on ISIS given al-Zawahiri the time and space needed to regroup and rebuild the global terror network? These are some of the questions that we'll be putting to Professor Bruce Hoffman and he holds tenure at Georgetown's University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. He also lectures at St Andrews University in Scotland, held a number uh, of senior roles at the RAND Corporation and has been an advisor to a long list of government departments and agencies in the post 9 era. G'day Bruce, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Delighted to be here. I wanted to quickly jump into it. We look at Syria and the Middle East today and the caliphate has fallen. What does that now mean for the evolution of terrorism and Islamic insurgency in the Middle East? I think we have to understand that the physical caliphate has fallen as a concept, as an idea, as an inspiration, as a motivation it still exists. And that's part of the problem is that groups like ISIS have been able to conceptualize themselves as an idea as much as a physical presence, which means that absent the physical presence, the struggle goes on. So for example, ISIS's core propaganda message when it had the caliphate was to its followers or would-be acolytes, come help us build the caliphate. Now their message is, come avenge the loss or the destruction of the caliphate. And of course, one of the most uh, visceral human emotions is the desire to exact revenge and retaliation. So sadly, although we've made tremendous progress, we physically dismantled the caliphate, we now have to be equally as adept, equally as determined at countering the idea of the caliphate and the motivations behind the existence of ISIS. And are we seeing that message drawing more international volunteers into Syria or in the Middle East, or have we seen the international effort to stop uh, international fighters moving into the region? Have we seen that be successful or are we still facing that challenge? We're not dealing with 40,000 or so foreign fighters from at least 120 different countries gravitating to one particular geographical rendezvous point. But given that ISIS, in order to ensure its longevity, has been very successful in cultivating roughly 18 or so uh, villettes, branches, uh, physical locations outside of the Levant in Iraq, uh, recently in places like Indonesia and the Philippines, Afghanistan. Um, there are still people who, wanna, who, if they want to fight alongside ISIS, can find a venue to go to. It's just further afield than the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Right. Now, you, you've written about the, the resurrection of al-Qaeda, and you've mentioned that whilst ISIS is carrying on the physical battle in the Middle East, al-Qaeda has taken this opportunity to rebuild, re-implement itself, and they've also drawn back from doing large-scale, large large-casualty attacks in the West, so to speak. What is al-Qaeda working towards, and why is Syria so important to them to dedicate so many of their resources? Al-Qaeda is really working towards reestablishing itself at the vanguard of the Salafi jihadi movement and stealing back some of the limelight, or perhaps all the limelight, that ISIS has occupied for the past four or five years. 
Uh, historically, for al-Qaeda, Syria was absolutely pivotal because it once again made them relevant. It, this is with the start of the civil war in 2011. It gave them a cause, it gave them a purpose, and it gave them a physical location to which they could focus and gravitate to. And of course, a reflection of that was the rise of ISIS because it was originally a franchise or an appendage to al-Qaeda that, at least from Ayman al-Zawahiri, al-Qaeda's uh, leader's perspective, uh, ISIS got and its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, got rather too ambitious, um, rather too uh, enamored of himself and his movement and refused to follow al-Zawahiri's guidance. And therefore, in January 2014, ISIS was expelled from the al-Qaeda fold. When we see al-Qaeda focusing on the battle, say, in Syria and becoming relevant again, you've mentioned how uh, al-Zawahiri has banned doing large casualty attacks mm -hmm. in foreign countries. First off, why is he doing that? And secondly, uh, if he has banned it, is that for now until they re-establish themselves? Can we expect to see a reinvigoration of the attacking the far enemy from al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda has always uh, adroitly shifted between the far and the near enemy as circumstances dictated or as opportunities presented themselves. So the fact that they go back and forth and there may not be this spectacular terrorist attacks in the West shouldn't be interpreted as it is in, in many capitals that this means Al-Qaeda is no longer relevant or no longer consequential. I would argue rather Al-Qaeda is uh, very gleefully sitting back, watching as ISIS continues to preoccupy the attention of the West and of countries in the Middle East as it continues to enervate and exhaust all of, us, all of us, as it continues to drain our treasuries of resources, as it continues to require some overseas military operations and presence. And what al-Zawahiri and al-Qaeda is hoping is that they can sit back very quietly, rebuild and steal themselves, marshal their resources to carry on the struggle that, after all, Osama bin Laden declared over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And critically, I think, something that plays into their narrative is that they have survived not just the greatest onslaught in history ever directed against the terrorist movement, but they have survived it from countries who have perhaps the most advanced militaries or certainly military technology in the history of mankind. So they believe that their struggle is divinely or ordained, and at the right time, they will be able to surface, resurface, I should say, and carry on that struggle and achieve more than they perhaps could have had they not laid back quietly and also consciously cultivated this image as, quote unquote, moderate extremists as a more palatable, a more constrained and therefore acceptable variant of ISIS. And, and do you think that that comparison to ISIS is going to change the appetite in, say, the Middle East and the Arabic countries for al-Qaeda and their message? I believe it already has. I think that there's any number of persons in a variety of governments in the region that are prepared to make a pact with the devil, that is with al-Qaeda, against ISIS, but also feels that al-Qaeda has somehow been tamed or moderated when they haven't. Al-Qaeda adheres to the same game plan that Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri first conceived 30 years ago this coming August. August 2018 will mark the 30th anniversary of al-Qaeda's founding. And as a terrorist group, you don't survive three decades unless you have this enormous capacity for learning and adaptation and an ability to overcome even the most consequential countermeasures directed by governments against you and the resolve and the commitment to carry on this with the struggle despite all odds. So I think ironically, 
after nearly two decades of the war on terrorism, al-Qaeda feels that it survived the worst and that it's the West and its enemies that are weakening. Well, al-Qaeda may not have gone from strength to strength, but has the resiliency and the ter- determination of a survivor. Do we have the resilience? Do we have the focus? Do we understand that the threat is still there? How do you see the preparations and the understanding of the threat in the national security communities of, of the allied and partner countries? Well, certainly amongst the closest allies, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States, I think there's an enormous commonality and understanding of the threat. I think as we've seen in recent years, there's been an erosion of the same commitment of the same transnational cooperation one saw at such on such a vast scale in the immediate aftermath of the September 11, 2001 attacks. I think that is very seriously eroded. Um, at the, and is, but as negative as that is, I think the fact that the English language, Western speaking countries that see this threat as one that is almost timeless and that, that has to be constantly fought against um, is an enormously, I think, positive and certainly, I think, is exactly the reason that our enemies using terrorism will fail us because of our own resolve and our own commitment to one another and the extraordinary cooperation that has existed between our countries now for many decades. You did mention resources earlier on, though, and we're seeing the globe shift from what was essentially uh, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism footing to now more traditional security setting where we're seeing um, the resurgence of Russia, the re-emergence of China again in history. Uh, how do you see that refocus of governments affecting their abilities to counter the terrorist threat? Well, I think this is all the more imperative that we have to steel ourselves and have our own very uh, firm resolve to counter terrorism because it didn't seem like it, but for the, at least the first decade and a bit of the war on terrorism, we had the luxury of just basically fighting one enemy in one or two or maybe three places. Now we're faced with the enormous challenges of two significant enemies, ISIS as well as al-Qaeda, each of whom combined have 40-some-odd branches. And the complexity and the difficulty of effectively countering them is not only become much more difficult because of their own proliferation, but because of our own resource constraints. But I think what all this means is that cooperation and the sharing of resources is more critical than ever. Um, But at the same time, too, we have to be much more effective and much more efficient in once and for all breaking what is really this long stasis. We've had any number of very important and very significant tactical successes against al-Qaeda and ISIS, without any doubt. What we have to be now and in the future is just as good at translating those tactical successes to some decisive strategic triumph. Not that eliminates terrorism. We're never going to eliminate terrorism completely. It's existed for two millennia and will continue to do so for for many millennia to come. But rather, to reduce it to the type of threat that it was perhaps before the 21st century when it posed more local or even at worst regional implications rather than the truly global strategic dimensions it's assumed today. One final question. In the Cold War, we saw the major powers actually utilising terrorist actors for their own national gains. Is there any risk of that happening again or or is um, Islamic terrorism and some of the brutality that we've seen recently just so much on the nose that we couldn't see any governments siding up against them for grand strategic gains? Well, I mean, there were certainly any number of mistakes that have been made in the war on terrorism since 9-11 and even in counterterrorism in the decades preceding that. 
One has to hope that our political leaders and those that we appoint to very senior positions in the military and the intelligence and security services are fully cognizant and aware of those mistakes and understand the consequences of repeating them. Um, I think we saw some of this in the United States with the confirmation hearings of Gina Haspel as the new uh, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I think that there has been this learning curve and there has been this understanding that at the very least, we can't afford stepping into traps that the terrorists set for us, that they attempt to provoke us to do things that go against our ethos, that go against our values, and that undermine the foundations of our liberal democratic societies. Mm. Professor Bruce Hoffman, if I don't stop asking questions now, I will never stop. So thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. You're very welcome. Clearly, we're about to see another evolution in what used to be called the global war on terror. We have seen the rise of the international jihadi. Then we have seen the rise of the caliphate and the fall of the caliphate under ISIS. Are we about to see the resurgence of al Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tighter. Would love to hear what you have to say on that. And I will be right back with some more after we hear from Dr. Sydney Jones, a leading expert in extremist violence in Southeast Asia. Hi, Sydney. Welcome to the National Security Podcast and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I wanted to really launch straight into it and look first at uh, Marawi. What does it mean to the region now we're in a post-Marari world? Do we learn lessons from the situation or have, has the risk increased of a uh, replication of these large-scale insurgencies and also the way that the military in the region responds to terror as a threat? First, I don't think that we're going to see another Marawi anywhere in Southeast Asia. I think it was only in the Philippines that you could have foreseen a takeover of an entire city simply because of the existence of multiple insurgencies who are armed, as well as the fact that you have enough ungoverned spaces so that you could actually prepare for something like Marawi. But I don't think it's possible that any other city anywhere else in Southeast Asia could be taken over. I do think that we are facing a situation now where the members of that coalition, the pro-ISIS coalition that took over Marawi, are in many cases still active, still armed, and still provided with uh, a significant amount of cash. So there's a lot of recruiting taking place in Lanao del Sur, the province where Marawi is located. There's a lot of unhappiness over the, the slowness of reconstruction. There's a lot of anger toward the government over the bombings that took place. 
uh, and the destruction, which in many cases they attribute more to the government than to the uh, the Maute group. So I think we're in for a long period of radical activity and recruitment focused on Marawi, but also extending to other areas where some of the pro, the parts of the pro-ISIS coalition were active. Now, you've mentioned three things there, ISIS, coalitions and recruitments. And we're hearing about the resurrection of al-Qaeda elsewhere in the world. What does this mean for Southeast Asia? Are, are we going to see al-Qaeda move back into the region in terms of recruiting, coalition building? Is there going to be a struggle? Or what, what do we see in the future of these coalitions and actual terrorist groups? The group that was historically most closely linked to al-Qaeda was Jamaa Islamiyah. Jamaa at its height, had a presence in five countries, including Australia. It no longer has a regional presence, although it has rebuilt significantly inside Indonesia. And it has sent uh, members of the organization to train with al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria. Not very many, but uh, at least... They have a long-term strategy in mind that includes the need to build up military capacity, even though they maintain at the moment that violence in Indonesia is counterproductive because Indonesia is not under attack or occupation. And in some cases, some members of Jamaa Islamiyah believe that you can actually achieve more through political infiltration than you can through violence. But they still identify with al-Qaeda in terms of the al-Qaeda-ISIS split. They are among the most virulently anti-ISIS jihadists in Indonesia. But I don't think that this translates into support for an al-Qaeda franchise in Southeast Asia. And I don't think people should be worried that that's a, a consequence of J.I.'s rebuilding. I do think we need to wonder about what the calculus is that J.I. might make to reverse its current decision that violence is counterproductive. Mm. And now you've you've just mentioned about the, the counterproductivity of violence in, in some of the, the terrorist actors' eyes and their view that acting politically and socially is probably going to be better for them in the long run. And we're seeing what some have termed as, as a rise of um, Islamization of Indonesia and Indonesian politics. And we definitely saw that uh, in the recent um, election for the governor of Jakarta. Are we seeing a, um, a rise in piety in Indonesia or is it actually a rise in um, extremism and extremist political views? Before we go there, I think it's important to stress that even though we mentioned that al-Qaeda sees violence as counterproductive and Jamaa Islamiyah, which is not necessarily the same thing, sees violence as counterproductive, there are still many ISIS groups that are committed to the use of violence in Indonesia. And that will probably increase because of the fact that they can no longer go to Syria. Uh, and now we're going to see a focus on actually committing acts of terror at home because their energies are going to be concentrated on that rather than going to Syria. So in terms of how this links to the broader 
influence of hardline Islamist organizations in Indonesia. It's a very complex picture. In general, these two phenomena are completely separate. That is, there is no link between the organizations that recruit for pro-ISIS activity or Jama Islamiyah activity for that matter, uh, or, and the groups that have been supportive of above-ground pro-Sharia advocacy that also involves political opportunism and support for individual actors in Indonesian politics. And that includes groups like the Front Pembela Islam, FPE, the Islamic Defenders Front. It also involves some of the Salafist groups that have gotten involved in politics. And their aim is to turn Indonesia into a society more influenced by Sharia. They would like to see a uh, re-emergence of the Jakarta Charter, which was uh, words that were initially in the Indonesian constitution at the time of independence that would have required Muslims to obey Islamic law. Uh, but uh, they are not in any way linked to, nor do they recruit from, violent extremist organizations. I think we are seeing a greater level of political influence from these groups. I think they have managed to translate their own uh, agenda into one that is adopted for uh, opportunistic reasons by some politicians who believe they can appeal to a conservative constituency by uh, adopting some of these goals. There is one way in which an intersection takes place, however, and that is the hardline Islamist groups manage to control the public debate on certain issues. For example, LGBT. For example, the, um, the need for the government to be more, uh, more active in enforcing a notion of orthodoxy and defining what Islamic orthodoxy is, meaning encouragement to uh, move against groups seen as deviant, like the Ahmadis, or move against Christian churches that might not have authorization to construct a house of worship. And as that debate becomes more public, then it means that violent groups may uh, almost subconsciously move against some of these groups as targets. So it may be easier for violent groups to attack churches because the hardline Islamist groups have made the illegal construction of churches so much a part of the public debate. It, it, it almost seems like that these groups are looking to undermine Panchasila itself. And is there any appetite in, in Indonesia, in the general populace, to take on some of the agenda of these more extremist groups? Well, uh, the Islamist groups argue that the correct interpretation of Panchasila basically ensures that the majority Muslim population should be in charge. And they interpret the first sila, which is belief in one God, as basically reinforcing 
the notion that Islam is the chosen religion. But what, so, was, wasn't that Silla actually chosen to say one God and specifically not to identify Islam for that reason? Exactly. But uh, if you go back and you look at how this is now being interpreted by some of the hardline groups, it's totally antithetical to that broader vision of Panchasila as representing tolerance and pluralism. Uh, I think... All of the polls show that something like 82 or 83 percent of Indonesians still regard Panchasila as the most appropriate basis for the, the state. But I don't think anyone has figured out a way to teach or inculcate the values of Panchasila as pluralism in a way that can be easily translated into government programs. Mm-hmm. So. Many people remember the old Suharto, what they called P4 training, which was basically enforced indoctrination of a state ideology in the service of an authoritarian regime. And nobody wants that back. If, if I could look at some of the tactical elements of dealing with terrorism in Indonesia, we've seen that the recent ruling that uh, the military can now involve itself much deeper in uh, the fight against terrorism. And if we look at some of the most recent attacks, say Surabaya and Riau and so on, these are essentially uh, crimes to thwart these attacks that would have involved good intelligence work and good policing work. Why has that become now a trigger for the TNI to get involved in counterterrorism? I think you have to see the TNI's efforts to get involved in counterterrorism as part of a move much more broadly to bring the military back into internal security more generally. TNI very much wants an expanded role. Part of that is uh, uh, a feeling of frustration that much of the funding has gone to the police. These upstarts that used to be their junior partner are now ruling the roost and have taken over some of the military's previous sources of revenue. So the military is trying to systematically claw back some of the authority it lost to the police after democratization in 1999. But I think there is also another factor, which is that the military is producing far more graduates than it has jobs for. Uh, And so there are officers in need of jobs. Uh, And so only by expanding the military's role can some of these people coming out of the military academy and rising in the ranks be absorbed. And that's another factor that I think we're seeing come into play. But I think it's going to have disastrous consequences in terms of the fight against terrorism, because as you say, we are not dealing with a Marawi-like situation. The closest we came was Poso, which was arguably a case where the police should have asked the military for assistance since the police themselves have no capacity in jungle warfare. And the police's reluctance to do that was precisely because they were worried that once the door was opened, the military would walk uh, right through. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And now they are forced to accept the fact that in one way or another, the military will be given a role, but it hasn't been spelled out yet. The the inability to define that role... uh, was what delayed the counterterrorism law from being passed. Now that it is passed, 
there is supposed to be a presidential instruction within a year that will outline the military's role. But what some people are saying is what actually should be the subject of that presidential instruction is a listing of the functions of both police and the military. So it isn't seen as just a definition of what the military should do, but it should be always in relation to put the police as the lead agency. So I think we have a lot of battles to come. Sydney Jones, thank you very much for talking to us today and uh, we look forward to chatting to you in the future. Thank you. And thank you very much to our guests today, Dr. Sydney Jones and Professor Bruce Hoffman, talking about an issue that has been with us for thousands of years and does not look to be going away in the near future. Keep up to date with all of the latest policy discussions at policyforum.net, Asia Pacific's platform for policy debate and analysis. And be sure to check out the Indo-Pacific in Focus section that was launched last week, edited by my boss, Professor Rory Medcalf, who, if he had his way, it would be the Indo-Pacific's platform for policy debate and analysis. There are loads of articles, analysis, opinion, videos, and wonderful podcasts just like this one you're listening to now. Be sure to give us some of your feedback. We are really keen to hear what you think about the matters that we discuss. Get in touch with us via email at podcast at policyforum.net, on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society, and on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so we can come to you every two weeks with a new episode of the National Security Podcast. I will see you in two weeks with the next instalment of the National Security Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.